We're going to turn to his word right now. God's word continuing in a study in 1 Peter. And uh, we've got a lot of things to talk about today before we go to the communion table. So would you bow with me and let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that uh, we can hopefully focus our minds, uh, engage our hearts through this worship time, that we might be ready now to um, talk about your word. And uh, Father, I'm, I'm grateful as one who stands up here this morning that um, I don't have to get up and give my opinions on, on what uh, you are about and who you are and how we know you and what this world is about, but you've already declared all that in your revelation to us. So our job is to rightly understand it, as the Reformers used to say, to rightly divide the word of truth. And so, God, may we do that. May you add your blessing upon this time. And, uh, Lord, would you prepare us for the week ahead so that Monday through Saturday we might uh, be very equipped to walk with you uh, in our culture and in our day. And we pray this in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. Well, I want us to uh, wrestle this morning with a couple of very important, somewhat contentious, but I believe life-giving New Testament doctrines. And yes, I said doctrines. Because despite what you have heard in our downhill, runaway culture, doctrine is a good thing. Can we say amen to that? It's a good thing. I mean, doctrine simply is another word for spiritual or scriptural truth, and that we certainly have to be careful that we don't reduce all of our faith in Christ to simply doctrine, because we know our faith is at core about relationship and trust. At the same time, doctrines are important because they're all about what we believe and hold to be true, and hence how we view others and the Christian life and God is all going to be guided by the doctrines that we hold to. I love how Hillsdale College, my alma mater, says it in one of its scholarly periodicals. They say, because ideas have consequences. You like that? Because ideas have consequences. Simply meaning that those things that we posit to be true in our mind will eventually work themselves out in how we feel, what we do, what we say, and obviously what we believe. So doctrine is that important. And this morning, I want us to wrestle with a couple of very significant, potentially life-altering doctrines that have everything to do with how you see God and life in Him. And before we dive in and explore these truths, I want to give you a very crucial caveat. So listen close. And that is that the two doctrines that we're going to talk about this morning, though I believe them with everything in me, and they've been very meaningful to me in my walk with Almighty God, you'll see that. They are as well, however, two issues that have been somewhat debated and bantered about in the last 2,000 years of Christian history. In other words, though I think these two things are very life-giving and key to how you and I view God and our relationship with Him through Jesus Christ, I have to be fair and tell you that there have been some mature, smart, and godly people down through the ages who have not seen the things that we're going to talk about today in the way that I'm going to explain them to you today. And that's important for you to know, because though I'm going to try to do my best to nudge some of you off-center and get you to see what I think is rather plain in the Scriptures here, I need to be fair and let you know that there are good and godly people who read the same Bible I do and believe in its authority just like I do that might not see these things the same way. And the reason that this is important for me to give you this caveat is because i got to believe that in a church the size of Scottsdale Bible Church, there's going to be some of these folks here today. Good, godly, mature, seasoned people that, that might not agree with my particular take on these things. And you need to know that our church has a history of not dividing over these issues, but leaving room for reasonable, scripturally-based disagreement over these issues. 
But having said that, I will tell you this, that what I'm going to share with you today, as best I can tell, are the teaching positions of Scottsdale Bible Church. I mean, we believe in these things strong enough, and I've researched enough about the history of our church through Daryl and Wayne Grudem on our elder board and others, that, that this is what our church has believed for a very, very long time. And so with no more setup, because some of you are dying to know what we're talking about here, here is the first thing I want to share with you today, and actually number two on your outline, because we're continuing from last week, you might remember, and it's simply this, and now you're going to get it. And that is that once a person is born again, he or she cannot ever be unborn again. And for those of you who have been around the theological block, you get it. For the rest of you, you'll get it in a few minutes here. Once a person has been born again, I'm suggesting to you, based on the scriptures, that he or she cannot ever be unborn again. If you were here last week, you know that we spent our whole time together in 1 Peter as we are continuing the series, getting us on the same page with what it means to be born again. Remember that? It's like a politically charged, culturally entrenched phrase, if there ever was one. And if you remember, I asked you to jettison as best you could all the 20th and 21st century baggage that has come along with this phrase. And let's try to get back, we did last week, to what Jesus and Peter originally meant when they coined this phrase. And it was simply this. It's simply a word picture that says that just in you, as you and I have been physically born into this world with all of its wonder and awe and life-giving opportunities, that Jesus was saying that we now need to be spiritually born now that we're here into a life-giving, awe-producing relationship with Almighty God. And that you do this through accepting Jesus Christ into your life as your leader and your forgiver. You place your faith in Christ and Him alone. And by doing so, the Bible says you're born again, born anew into eternal, life-changing, awesome relationship with God your Father. And so we talked about this last week. We spent our whole time on it. And at the end, we gave all of us who have not had a chance to accept Christ a chance to do that or to recommit our lives. And it was a watershed Sunday for our church, wasn't it? I mean, hundreds of people either recommitted their life or accepted Christ for the first time. And I believe it's key for our church right now to establish this truth as we move on through our transition. And yet here's the deal. And that is that once this has happened, once you've accepted Jesus Christ into your life and become a follower of him, Peter, in his letter that we're studying this summer here at our church, goes on to say something extremely profound about your newfound relationship with God. And so let's read about it now in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Verse 3 will be reviewed from last week, but verses 4 and 5 have the capacity to blow your mind. Look at what he says. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now get this, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So check out what's going on here, folks. After establishing the fact that we can all experience this new birth that brings us into a faith-filled, eternity-producing, life-giving walk with God, notice that Peter goes on to describe and define now some of the parameters of this salvation that you've now experienced. 
And what you need to see more than anything else here is that he uses language that sure seems to communicate that because this salvation was primarily God's doing, remember from week one this idea of election, because it was God's doing, that your salvation is now a done deal and cannot be undone. In fact, Peter, I believe, is communicating here that it is so done that there is nothing that you can do now to change your saved condition. That we're going to see nothing can ever separate you now from God, your heavenly Father. I think that's what Peter is saying here. I mean, notice that he begins by calling your salvation an inheritance. Do you see that in verse 4 there? That is such a key word to understanding this passage, an inheritance. And an inheritance back then is exactly what you think of today. I mean, all of us get a smile on our face when we think of an inheritance, right? I do, not wishing my parents dead, but knowing that, and my dad hears these sermons, knowing that when his time comes, he's hopefully saved a little for the son, right? And that's what an inheritance is. It's a human-based will that is drawn up, and whether it's a father or a mother or a friend or a loved one, they leave you a little something when they go on. And all of us know what an inheritance is, and it's a, it's a powerful thing, and many times an economically life-giving thing. And, and yet think about it. Unless someone changes the documents, what an inheritance or a will means is that you're going to get what is promised, right? I mean, that's the way it works. It's a guarantee. That's what a will is, guaranteeing that you're going to get this inheritance. And so in the case of what Peter is writing about here in chapter 1, he's obviously using this word picture to talk about our salvation. I mean, he says there at the end of verse 5, a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So the inheritance is is talking about our salvation. And so don't miss it. He's telling us that our salvation, this idea of being born anew into God's kingdom, is like an inheritance promising us that when we die, things like heaven and eternal life and being face-to-face with God and even certain rewards that the Bible talks about based on our faithfulness are all going to be ours. That's the inheritance. And so if you're tracking with me up to this point, the real issue then becomes this. And that is, is this inheritance something that can be revoked and or abrogated like you can do with most human-based wills? And in this sense, it would be conditional and potentially temporary in nature. Or is this inheritance a permanent and guaranteed inheritance not subject to change and or dissolution? That's the key issue here, folks. That's the issue that theologians have actually been arguing about for 2,000 years now, and there's been some significant disagreement as to this point. Is it permanent or potentially temporary inheritance subject to our spiritual performance now as followers of Jesus? Now, let me give you a tip. We're going to do this in just a second here, but whenever you run into a difficulty in the Bible in understanding what a passage is saying, you do two things to deal with that difficulty. First is that you look at the context surrounding that passage and you ask yourself, does it help me with this difficulty, right? So what we're going to do in a second here is we're going to look at the context around this word inheritance and ask ourselves, is this a permanent or potentially temporary inheritance being talked about here? Context determines everything. Then the second thing you do, though, to make sure that you're still getting what the author is saying is because the Bible is a whole, you look for other passages, right? that might be talking about the same issue and ask yourself, what do they say about this? So we're going to look at some passages in a minute also talking about this idea of inheritance tied to our salvation. So first, check out the context of verses 4 and 5 here 
and see how they describe this inheritance that surrounds our salvation. And notice no less than five key qualifiers that do nothing but blow our minds and as far as I see it, settle the issue. It says this inheritance is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, and by God's power is guarded. Like, wow. That word imperishable here literally means will not rot or decay, carrying with it a picture of something that's not going to go bad over time like food does or like grass does in the hot Arizona sun. We all can relate to that, right? And it's picturing something that isn't going to do that. As our friend and elder Wayne Grudem says it in his commentary on 1 Peter, he says, time will not wear it out. Or as Peter Davids, another New Testament scholar, says, it is permanent. You get the idea. That's what the word means. Then look at the next word, undefiled. It carries with it the idea of something that is pure through and through, not stained by anything. And i got to ask you, could that even mean like our sin or our behavior? I think that might be what Peter's getting at here. And then Peter qualifies his inheritance describing our salvation with a third word, unfading. Interesting word. Never used anywhere else in the New Testament, only here in Peter. It's unique to Peter. And Peter only uses this word twice here. So it's a, it's a very rare word in the original language. And we know from our study outside of the New Testament that in its most literal form, it means not capable of losing quality or character, unfading. And in fact, fascinating, it's used in apocalyptic literature outside the New Testament, which is like religious literature that didn't make it into the New Testament, to refer to flowers that never fade as they bloom in the next world. You get the idea, something that is eternally non-fading. That's what this word means here. And then, after these three descriptive words, Peter gives us the first of two descriptive phrases. He first says this inheritance is kept in heaven for you. And I'm thinking to myself at this point, could he be more clear on what he's getting at with this idea of permanent versus temporary? I mean, I love it. This phrase, in its most literal and wooden rendering, means divinely held. Picture God and his fist holding something and saying, I'm not letting it go. Kept in heaven for you. That's what he's saying about this salvation, this inheritance of ours. And as if all this were not enough, he caps it off with a final phrase, who by God's power are being guarded through faith. The picture here is of a military or fortress camp with God being the lead guard. So nothing comes into attack and nothing goes out to get harmed with God at the post. I mean, add it all up, folks. Our salvation is an inheritance, something that God has begun here with Christ's sacrificial death on a cross and our being born anew but then something that will finally culminate in heaven when we see him face to face. And is this inheritance permanent? The kind of thing that can give us security as believers through all the ups and downs, all the ebbs and flows that we experience in our walk with God this kind of side of heaven? Or is it temporary based on whether we continue to jump through various hoops or not? You be the judge. But look at the words. Imperishable undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, guarded by God's power. I mean, I don't think Peter's being unclear here. I think he desperately wanted to communicate to you and I that once you are saved, you're always saved. That once you've come into his kingdom, nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And as all of, all of this were not enough, 
comparing it now to some other scriptures, look at how Ephesians 1 goes on to talk about the same inheritance tied to our salvation. This is amazing. Look at verses 13 to 14 of Ephesians 1. It says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, now get this, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. I love it. Sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And then he adds an element here to this idea of inheritance when he says it's guaranteed. It's guaranteed that you're going to be taken all the way to heaven with this salvation that is now yours. Paul would go on to say that for believers there's nothing now that can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, not even your faithlessness. Because he says when you are faithless, he remains faithful. And even Jesus, by the way, would tell us that his sheep hear his voice and that no one can snatch them out of his hand. Don't you love that? The implication being, by the way, not even you. I mean, not even you can snatch you out of Jesus' hand. That's what he seems to insinuate to us. I mean, many other parts of the Bible, folks, from multiple authors affirm what Peter is teaching here. And maybe you're thinking right now, or maybe you've heard said, but, but Jamie, come on. I mean, aren't there other scriptures that seem to suggest that we can lose our salvation, that this inheritance is potentially temporary? I mean, come on. Aren't there other scriptures that seem to suggest that we can lose our salvation? And here's the answer, folks, and I'm being very fair here. And that is that there are other scriptures, very few of them, that seemingly at face value do seem to suggest that. But the key is there is that there are very few of them, and they're very far between, and they only seem to suggest that. And though we don't have time to go into them today, we will another time. And i got to tell you, i got a, if I don't mind saying so myself, a killer sermon on Hebrews chapter 6. I mean, a sermon that I did a few years ago, and I really don't think highly of myself. You guys are picking up on that already. I really don't. I get done with most sermons and think that was a wash. But there are some times where I, I give a sermon and I go, oh, you nailed it, Rasmussen. And I, and I think, you know, way to go. And it's good to feel good about that. And I gave a sermon about seven, eight years ago in my first church there. I've done Hebrews 6 with the, this most contentious issue of losing your salvation. And, and one of these days we'll talk about that passage here. But what I have found, folks, is that when you look closely at them, when you look closely at some of these passages that seem to suggest that you can lose your salvation, there are clearly alternate interpretations that make you realize that the overwhelming New Testament evidence is in support of this idea of once saved, always saved. Or to use Peter's idea that once you're born again, you cannot be unborn again. Because in the end, please hear this, what I believe what God wants us to walk into our daily world with, what he wants us to think about Monday through Saturday in our living is the absolute security that you and I have in our accepting of Christ as Savior, this experience of being born again through being born anew into God's kingdom, and that there is nothing that can ever undo this. That once you become a child of God, just like with your own kids, that though they might run away and make bonehead decisions, that they might do awful things, nothing can change your love for them. Amen? God says the same thing. He says, you can separate yourself relationally from me. Go ahead, do it. You will. You can do that. But nothing can alter the fact that you are mine, that you are saved, and that I'm going to leave the 99, and I'm going to run out to the hills to get that one straying sheep. I mean, that's the God 
that you and I serve. That's the security we have in our salvation. His hold on you is that strong. His spirit now lives in you, and you have great value in his eyes. Again, not because of anything intrinsic to you, but because his spirit lives in you, and Christ died for you, and this has now added value to you, and nothing can take that value away as God now sees you. I want to give you an illustration that I think uh, is very simple, but you're going to relate to. I went to the bank yesterday and got a, a four $20 bills, nice, crisp, new ones, okay? And, uh, and, and when I've given this illustration back in, in Geauga County in Ohio, I used $5 bills, but this is Scottsdale. So I went and got a $20 bills because I thought you guys will look at $5 bills and go big whip. But I hope we all agree that 20 bucks can buy you like half of a fun meal or whatever at McDonald's, right, here in uh, Scottsdale. But it's, it's worth some money. Now, if I, uh, if I walked up to you today and gave you this 20 bucks, said, you know, take your kids out for half a meal or whatever, you, you'd say, hey, thanks a lot, 20 bucks, that has some value. Um, but but let's, uh, let's, let's spitball for a second here. What if, uh, what if I take this 20 and I, and I wad it up like this? Don't worry, if you work for the treasury, I'm not destroying currency. You'll see in a second here. And I wad it up like this. And then, let's say that I take this 20 and I, and I put it on the ground and I, uh, and I stamp on it, okay? So I've wadded it up and now I've stamped on it. And, and because I'm a, I'm a crazy pastor, I don't stop there. But, but let's say that I've asked Pat Sullivan, to, uh, who's our associate senior pastor here, and I, and I asked him to go outside and get me a bunch of dirt. And I take that dirt and I rub it. See it right here? Right in this $20 bill. And because the dirt's so dry and it really didn't get on it, let's add some water to it right now, all right? So I got, like, dirt and water all over this $20 bill here, okay? So I, I've wadded it up, I've trampled on it, it's dirty, and now it's wet. Very different than what it was before, okay? And so then let's say that I come down to this young strapping man right here, and I say, you want 20 bucks? Did you see how quickly he reached out for that 20 bucks? Wow, smart kid. And you can keep that, by the way. So give him a round of applause. All right. So now let's break down what happened. Um, 20 bucks that any of you would have taken, at any, uh, no stretch of imagination, you would have accepted it. But I trampled on it. I, uh, I wadded it all up. I uh, got it all dirty. And I got it all wet. And I went to hand it to a kid, and he grabbed it right away. Why? Because he knows that it still has value. Amen? It's still 20 bucks. He can go out and use it any way he wants. I would suggest to you that God sees the believer the same way. That when you come to Christ, in a very real sense, you're like a brand new $20 bill. I mean, as Paul says, you're a jar of clay now with a spirit living inside of you. As Isaiah says, you, you, your sins used to be as red as scarlet, now they're as white as snow. I mean, it's a new day, especially for those people who accepted Christ last Sunday. A new day for them. But we all know that life's going to deal some blows, right? And so we're probably going to get dirty again. But we're going to get trampled on. We're going to go through some difficult times. Some of us, even very difficult times. And what you need to see, however, is that the value stays the same in God's eyes. Nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. He saved you. You're divinely held. He's never letting go. 
And you know, somebody came up to me after the last service and they said, but, but this isn't an excuse to sin, is it? Well, duh, of course not. I mean, God didn't say that to you so that you'd go out and just sin like crazy as if you now have fire insurance. I mean, that's not the point. Any more than when you tell your kid that you love them and that there's nothing that they can do to change that love, you don't expect them to go out and test that, do you? God doesn't want that. God does it so that we love them even more. And so that we feel secure and we say, oh God, I can't believe you would love me that much. Because God, you don't know, I guess you do know, all the things that I have done. And all the things that I might do. Because you're omniscient and you know all things. And you still love me. Theologians call this the security of the believer. The fact that believers now, God will persevere all the way to eternity, all the way to heaven. Your salvation is not your own doing, it's his doing. And, And he's going to persevere you all the way until you see him face to face. But then if you're tracking with me, this leads logically to another key issue. Another somewhat contentious, sometimes debated truth or doctrine that Peter now goes on to address. And that is simply this. And that is, well, how then can one be assured that they are God's in the first place? I mean, if salvation is secure and life is filled with lots of up and downs, how can a person be assured, now get this, even in their lowest point, right, like when things are really rock bottom, things are really difficult and your faith is weak and doubts are strong and all that, how can you be assured that you're still his? And so here's the third thing that I believe Peter is communicating to us in this opening chapter of his letter, and that is that a believer is assured of his or her salvation by his or her faith and belief in Christ, as well as the consequent and evident fruit that God brings. And let me repeat that. I know it's a mouthful, but this will be your friend. A believer is assured in his or her salvation by his or her faith or belief in Christ, that initial act, as well as the consequent and evident fruit that God now brings to your life. And so what are we talking about here? Look at what Peter goes on to say in verses 6 through 9 of this passage and see if you don't see what I see. He says, in this, meaning your salvation, you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him, and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls." And so simply notice a few things about this passage here, folks, more quickly than the first point. First, notice that it says there in verse 8 that you believe in him. Do you see that there? You believe in him. Very key phrase in the New Testament and in this passage. And it's fascinating because in the context here, it contrasts that belief with the fact that you don't see him. So that adds even more value to that belief. You don't see him because nobody has seen God and you won't until eternity, but yet you still believe in him. And I would suggest to you that it's this belief that is the primary and core assurance of your salvation. That the fact that you know there has been a time in history past that you have clearly accepted Christ as Lord and Savior, even if you can't name the date like some people can, but you know there was a period of time where the light went on in your head, that that act of faith and then all the ones after that, even in your lowest moments, are lights, they're neon signs that say you're His. You've trusted him, and he's never letting go of you. It's 1 John 5.13. 
that says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. You believe and therefore you know. It's your primary act of assurance. And so I got to tell you, even in my low points, and I have them, I've told you guys that, when I wonder, gosh, can I really be a Christian? I mean, I'm sure not acting like one right now. I go, oh yeah, March 11th, 1981. I know that day was real. And I know that there have been days since then, walking across that football field when I was in seminary, just having it out with God and, and praying and wrestling with Him. That was real. In other words, I can point to things, experiences in the past of faith in Jesus Christ that I know were real. And so though I'm not having them now, though I'm tired now, though I'm, I'm weary now, those were real. Those are assurance that I am His. Do you see how that works? But then notice that Peter goes on here to give us some other forms of assurance in the form of what theologians have labeled over the years evidences or fruit of our faith. Now listen close. I personally call these secondary sources of assurance. Secondary sources. Because the primary sources we've seen is our faith and belief. But these secondary sources are still critical because these are things that accompany your faith and they give you added measure that you are His. These are things that flow or proceed from your faith, evidence of it, fruit from it, and they do nothing that confirm that you are His. And so what am I talking about here? Well, notice looking up here on the screen there that Peter gives us at least three of them right here. He says there in verse 7, various trials, the tested genuineness of your faith. That's, secondary, that's the, the secondary form of, of assurance right there. In other words, you go through trials and times of difficulty, like they did back then. And instead of abandoning your faith by copying an attitude of saying, where's God when it hurts and I'm getting out of the ring and I'm not walking with Him anymore, you instead rely on His goodness and His faithfulness to you. And you persevere during these rough times. And as you persevere, the Bible says that's a sign that you are His. So let me ask you, church, have you ever had a time We've gone through a rough spot in your Christian faith, only finding yourself persevering, gutting it out, and hanging in there anyways. If you've done that, that's a fruit. That's a sign that you're His. And then notice a second one that He gives us here. It says in verse 8, you love Him. You love Him. How do you love Him? Well, my guess is that you pray, and that you read the Word that you go to church, that you love others around you, that you serve, that you do your best to obey Him with your life. And when you do these things, the Bible says that you're showing your love for Him, and this gives you added confidence that indeed you're born anew. Can you relate? And then lastly, Peter says here in verse 8, I love this one, you rejoice with joy that's inexpressible. Now, let me ask you, have you ever found yourself in a really tough spot in life? Say your marriage has gone south, or you have health issues, or mud and money problems, or your job stinks, or you have a big relational rift with a close friend or a relative, and, and yet in the midst of this difficulty, you found yourself ironically happy and content that God is in your life. You ever had that happen to you? If you have, that's a sign, an evidence of fruit of Him living in you. I mean, it's joy inexpressible. Try explaining it to another person around you. Have you ever tried that? Like they go, why are you so happy? Your life's falling apart. Because God's in my life. What are you, an idiot? I mean, that's what they look at you like, right? That's joy inexpressible. I'm not an idiot. 
I've got in my life. And that's part of the fruit. And folks, the scriptures add many other things that are fruit and evidences of. Things like patience and peace and purpose. I mean, lots of things that God brings to our lives called the fruit of the Spirit that give us added assurance that we are His. And in a very real way, these things give us confidence week in and week out, lest we ever doubt that He is in our life. And that, by its very nature, then, breeds security. How many of you have ever gone over to San Francisco and uh, seen the uh, Golden Gate Bridge? Let me see a hand raise. Everybody? I'm really on the West Coast almost here, so I know a lot of you have. Uh, Kim and I have only been over there once or twice because we're Midwest people, but um, went over just a little while ago, and it was just a, an, an amazing view. I mean, it's an amazing bridge. You can see it in the picture up here. Uh, when that bridge was being made back in the 1930s, it was called the, when it was being made, they called it the Dance of Danger. And the reason that they media labeled it the Dance of Danger is because when they were building this bridge, as you can imagine, you know, 80 years ago with all the swaying catwalks and the high towers and being hundreds of feet in the air with the blowing wind, there were plenty of casualties and fatalities when they would try something like this. And actually the media had done the research and they had guesstimated that for every million dollars spent on a project like this, one life would be lost. And they knew that when they started construction of the Golden Gate Bridge in 1932, that it would take about four years and $20 million to complete. And so the media printed in San Francisco there and nationwide that it would probably, there would probably be 20 people or so that lose their lives building the Golden Gate Bridge. And that's why they called it the Dance of Danger. When the engineers found out about this, however, they, they believed that they could significantly lower the risks and so when construction began in 32, they implemented numerous safety measures that have now become standards for projects like this. In other words, they, they did the mandatory use of hard hats. They had prescription-filtered eyeglasses. They, they would fire anybody that was goofing off at all when they were high up there. They'd have tie-off lines. They even put on-site hospitals right there to help uh, greatly reduce the casualty rate. And get this, due to all these new safety measures, after four years and $20 million, only one person died in the building of the Golden Gate Bridge. I mean, it was a new day for construction in our country. And yet the most effective safety device, in hindsight, was actually none of the things that I just mentioned, but the most effective safety device was using something that circuses had only used up to that point. And all of you know it, it was one of those trapeze safety nets. In other words, somebody got this brainstorm idea that just like the circus has used this trapeze net, why don't we put a huge net out under the Golden Gate Bridge as we're building it and catch anybody that might fall? So spending $130,000 in 1932 dollars, they draped a, a net that was 10 feet wide spanning all the bridge, 60 feet below all the construction. And so... And so uh, critical and effective was the safety net that the newspapers began running box scores on how many people fell into this net. I mean, isn't the media just wonderful? And so one of the headlines read this one day, score on the gate bridge safety net to date, eight saved lives. Eight. It saved dozens of people who fell. And even more than just saving them, you know what most people found? is that it gave an incredible amount, now here's the word, of assurance to these workers that as they worked, that even if they fell, 
they probably would live. And so the workers were more free and more productive building the Golden Gate Bridge. And I think there's something for that in you and I when it comes to Almighty God. Are you starting to see? That when you and I are going about our lives, doing our thing, there are times where we're walking in very windy conditions, very high catwalks. And as Jude says, there are times even that we fall in our lives, in our spiritual walk with God. And what Peter comes along and says is, okay, it's not a good thing to fall, but when you do, there's a safety net. You're secure as a believer in Christ. He will catch you. He will deliver you to that final salvation. And if you wonder if you're his, there's further assurance. You've trusted him for eternal life, and that makes all the difference. And there's going to be fruit that he brings to your life during all the ebbs and flows. Things like joy and love for God and even perseverance during trials. And that as you see those things, take heart, believer, you are his. So as I've been very fond of saying almost every first Sunday of every month, I can't think of a better Sunday to go to the communion table than today. Because you see, some of you have come in here awfully beat up and discouraged in your faith. And this table that we're going to right now is designed for you. It's really designed for all of us. But it's designed for you. Because as you hold these elements today, here's what I want you to do. If you have come to a point in your life where you have trusted Christ, and I don't care if you are 6 or 60, I want you to lean on that day here today. I want you to lean on that day that God entered into your life through Christ. And as you hold these elements, this juice and this bread, realize anew today what they represent for you. And that is that they represent the grace of God extended into your life. And his grip is so strong on you that nothing can ultimately drag you away from him. What a day to take communion. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that from front to last, from Genesis to Revelation, there is a, a theme, a thread of grace throughout your scriptures. And Father, grace is sure, certainly not a place that we are to wipe our feet and somehow abuse. But grace, Lord, is designed that in our lowest moments, when we are most struggling, to be that ultimate security and assurance that we are yours. And so, Lord, with that understanding, we thank you that John told us in John 1 that grace and truth have come through Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, as we go to this communion table now, there are some of us here this morning that need to lean heavily upon this amazing grace that is ours in Christ. And, Lord, for the rest of us, we need to not take lightly your grace, but enter into a time of worship and thankfulness and draw strength from this act of worship. Father, I thank you that there is no one here in this auditorium, this worship center this morning that is beyond the scope of your grace. No one. No sin unforgiven. No sin that can ultimately separate us from you. Thank you that that's come to us in Christ. And so it's his body and his blood that we celebrate now. In Jesus' holy and precious name, amen. Amen.